So as I said earlier, chapter two of Second Peter can be really, really difficult. Um, it certainly has taken me a long time to kind of work through it. And the funny thing is, once you get things untangled, uh, it isn't nearly as difficult or confusing as it may appear. And I hope that I can just simplify it for you. Um, you may disagree with my conclusions, and that's okay. You know, we, we don't always see everything exactly the same, and that's fine. Um, I don't think that's going to be a, a big issue. But at any rate, let's pray. We'll get into this, and we'll try to wrap this up in about 45 minutes. We'll take a break, and then we'll have our last session. So let's pray together. Lord, you've been very good to us today. As I step out the doors, it's just such a beautiful spring day. The green grass is coming up and trees are blossoming and it's just uh, wonderful to see the seasons change again. And Father, in so many ways, you surround us with evidences of your love and care and provision. We are thankful for all of that. And once again, thank you for the privilege of having this weekend to just dedicate to looking into your word, feeding on the truth, and growing in your grace and, and truth as we gather together. So we now pray that in this passage, which can be confusing and can be very difficult, you would just help us to deal with it in a simple way that uh, hopefully will challenge and encourage and strengthen each and every one of us in our faith. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned the use of the personal pronouns, third personal pronouns, second personal pronouns. I thought I would try to just simplify all of this by pointing out that the you that he mentions in verse 1 is referring to the people he's writing to, and these are faithful believers, but believers that he wants to warn against the danger of false teaching. So he's talking to you. He says there will be false prophets among you or false teachers among you. So we're dealing here with believers. This would include y'all, but he's also expressing the concern that none of us would be led astray by the false teachers. And then he talks about them and their. Uh, he really begins this in verse uh uh, three, where he says, I'm sorry, verse two, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness. They will exploit you. He's talking here about unsaved false teachers. And he's going to talk about them in verse three and four and in verse 12 through 17. And then we're going to get down to the end where it gets really gnarly, and that's in verses 20 through 22. And he talks about them, but he's talking here about believers who allow themselves to be led astray. Deceived believers, believers who have been led astray. And this is really where the conflict and the, the uh, contention comes in, is who is he talking about at the end of the chapter? We have to keep in mind, and it's always important for us to ask the question, what is the writer's intent? What is he trying to accomplish? His concern is not so much, obviously he would love to lead the false teachers to saving faith, 
but he's not writing to the false teachers and he's not trying to deliver the false teachers. He's trying to deliver believers. So he's warning believers who may have been deceived that there is a danger in following that deception. All right, so we're going to work with that. At the bottom of your page, which is page nine, you have a little section, and I tried to include several sections here, which are point-by-point -point developments of uh, certain principles or teachings or doctrines. And <clears throat> many people are not familiar with the subject of hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneutics comes from a Greek word, hermeneuo, and it basically means to interpret or to understand, to explain. And the doctrine of basic hermeneutics is how can we approach the Bible and study the Bible so that we don't get confused, so that we uh, don't misinterpret it? There are certain rules, and you need to understand that hermeneutics is not just a science that applies to biblical interpretation. It applies to anything. Uh, if we study the works of Homer, uh, if we're looking at any ancient writing, we want to apply certain rules and regulations that are going to help us accurately interpret what that particular writing is all about. And so we have such things as what's called the law of unity, which tells us that truth cannot be contradictory. You can't have two things that say the opposite and have both of them be true. Truth must be consistent with itself. It must be non-contradictory. Aristotle, of course, came to this way back in the uh, 5th century uh, B.C., and the idea is the law of non-contradiction. Then we have the law of context, which indicates that the meaning of a word, a phrase, or a sentence is determined by the intent of the author and the way that it's used within the context. Someone asked me a question during the break. The scripture says that God loves all men and God hates uh, those who do certain things. How can God both love and God at the same time hate? My answer uh, may be an oversimplistic way, but Jesus told me, reading through the scriptures, that if I'm going to follow him, I have to hate my wife. Paul tells me in the scripture that I am to love my wife as Christ loves the church. In order for us to reconcile those, we need to understand how love and hate are being used in the context. And in the context, when Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you must hate your wife, your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your children, so on and so forth. All he's saying, he's using the word hate in a non-emotional context. In other words, it's not like I've got this antagonistic attitude or I'm just fed up and sick of, you know, my wife, my father, mother. It's saying that you have to choose me over them. If I'm following the Lord and my wife wants me to go in a different direction and I say, no, this is the way the Lord wants me to go. To her, it seems like I hate her. And it's obviously because I've chosen to follow the Lord. We can get into a lot of technicalities. The Bible talks about things that we call anthropopathism, which is ascribing to God human emotional or human thinking concepts. Uh, God hates. God repented himself that he made man. Obviously, God knew that what was going to happen from the beginning of the world. But language of accommodation is used to explain to us why would God 
bring a flood on the world. Well, it repented him that he had made man. In other words, the condition of things existing on the earth at that time was not according to his will. We use such things as anthropomorphism, which is to ascribe to God human physical characteristics. The face of God, Scripture says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. We talk about being under the hand of God. We know that God doesn't have a face, ears, eyes, or hands, but we use physical characteristics to describe Him so that you and I, it's, it's to make it easy for us to understand God within the terms of life as we know it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And that'll help you understand the third point, which is the point of logic or the law of logic. Logic indicates that all truth must have three characteristics. Number one, it must be coherent. If someone says, well, there's, this is a truth, but there's no way I can describe it to you, like they've gotten into the Zen of something and it's like, the leaf flutters, the wind blows, the sky turns dark. And that's supposed to have some deep meaning to you. It's not coherent, right? So truth has to be coherent. It has to be capable of being understood. And that's why I approach passages like Second Peter, as difficult as they may be, God intends us to understand it. We just have to work through our own limitations in that understanding. Secondly, not only must truth be coherent, it must be consistent. This goes back to the first law of non-contradiction. And thirdly, it must have correlation. Coherence, consistency, and correlation. And by correlation, we mean that the truth must relate to life as we know it. It has to relate to truth of life as we know it. Uh, there are many other things that we can get into, and you can read through these notes. They'll give you a lot of references, but the law of first mention is important. Uh, if we look at where a word first occurs in Scripture, that will give us a pretty good idea how it's going to be used through Scripture, such as grace first appears in Genesis 6, 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Belief occurs first in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Worship first occurs in Genesis 22, 5. Abraham is taking Isaac up to offer him on the mountain, and he says to the young men that have gone with him, the lad and I will go yonder and worship. If you think of worship in those terms, we realize that worship is offering our best to God. Worship is being willing to sacrifice to God, and so on and so forth. And then finally, faith believe it or not, is used in the first positive sense in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, the just shall live by faith. Is it any wonder that Paul builds his primary doctrine of salvation by grace through faith off of two Old Testament passages? Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, the just shall live by faith. The law of repetition is important, number five. That's the fact that a truth that is repeated is done so for the sake of emphasis on its importance. If we go to Genesis 1 and we keep repeating the phrases, God saw that it was good, it's repeated over and over, or that he created each according to its kind over and over. Um, obviously, he's trying to emphasize something. Uh, the word blessed in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Jesus is emphasizing something in his very first public message recorded for us in Scripture. He wants to show us the way into blessing. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. How does it begin? It begins like that ladder that I showed you, the idea of humility. The poor in spirit means that we don't look at ourselves as someone who has much to offer to God. We look at ourselves as a beggar who is totally in need of his grace and his mercy. So these are some of the principles that may help you in your study. It continues on the next page. The law of literal interpretation. We interpret the Bible literally, but that means that we take figures of speech as figures of speech and we take parables as parables. The only way to interpret a figure of speech literally is to recognize it as a figure of speech. Example, you must hate your wife, husband, father, mother, so on and so forth. We recognize the law of progressive revelation, which tells us that God's word is progressively revealed from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation, and therefore there is constantly new truth being added. And finally, the law of simplicity, which is way back in the Puritan times, was called the rule of faith. And that means if I have a simple passage on salvation and I have a complex passage on salvation, I'm going to interpret the complex in light of the simple. Does that make sense? God has done everything he can to make it as simple as possible for us to understand the truth that he has recorded for us. But we do need to recognize when you're dealing with divine and eternal truth, there are some things that are going to be very deep and some things that are going to be difficult. And we just have to wrestle with those till we come to a conclusion. All right. So we've seen that there are going to be false teachers. We've seen that they're going to deny the Lord. They're going to deceive people and lead them astray. And they're going to bring shame on the message of truth. We also looked at verses four through nine. And we saw the flood generation, by the way, the angels who sinned are the angels of Genesis 6. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. People ask me, how could that happen? I don't know. All I know is that there's only four times in the Old Testament where the phrase sons of God is used, and it's always used of angels, always in the Old Testament. Sons of God in the Old Testament doesn't have the same connotation it has in the New Testament for obvious reasons. So we need to make a distinction between things like that. By the way, the, well, I'm not going to go into that. that. That just probably brings in more controversy than necessary. So the angels that sinned, if you look in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you look in the book of Jude, uh, you will find out that these are uh, spirits that have been cast into prison Peter says that the angels that sinned have been cast down to hell, but the word hell here is not Hades or Hades as we would say it. It is Tartarus. Tartarus is a completely different place. Let me illustrate. No humans are in Tartarus. 
You'll remember in the parable in Luke 18 of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man died and went to torments, which is hadith or hell. The poor man, Lazarus, went to Abraham's bosom, also known as paradise. In between was a great gulf, the abyss. You read about it in the book of Revelation. At the bottom of abyss is Tartarus. Tartarus is a place where only angels are imprisoned. And the idea here is that the angels that rebelled, Jude says they were angels that did two things. Number one, they kept not their first estate. And number two, they went after strange flesh. <clears throat> They're always connected with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah for that reason. So when Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, remember it says he led captivity captive. He took into the presence of the Father all the Old Testament saints so that paradise is no longer in the lower parts of the earth. 2 Corinthians 12 tells us that paradise is now in the presence of God. Hades still in the same place. Tartarus still in the same place. So the angels that sinned were cast into Tartarus, delivered into chains to be reserved for judgment. He didn't spare the ancient world. Why? Because the wrath of God was on that generation. But he did save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Uh, someone was just telling me, I think it was Roger was talking about the documentary on the flood and Lake Titicaca, which is at about, what, 11,000 feet? still has seawater in it. It's in the Andes, South America, and it still has seawater. I don't know if any of you ever buy Himalayan sea salt. Did you ever ask yourself, how in the world does Himalayan sea salt get at the top of the highest mountains in the world? Well, that's why, because of the flood. And people say, well, how could the waters have risen that high? What is, uh, what's the highest mountain ever? Isn't it like something like uh, 35,000 feet or something like that, 39,000 feet. How could the water get that high? Well, Scripture indicates that it didn't. The mountains were not that high. The mountains actually, the flood created such an upheaval in the earth. I think it's Psalm 104 that talks about how the mountains rose up and the valleys went down. And that was something that occurred after the flood. So the waters would not have had to be that high uh, all around the face of the earth. But the main point that Peter's making here is God knows how to judge the wicked and deliver the righteous. And we have the same with Lot, Lot living in Sodom. Notice that it says he is righteous Lot. He was a believer. He was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. He was tormenting his own soul. This, the active voice indicates that Lot was doing this to himself. How was he doing it to himself? He had a choice. He could have moved out. There was other places he could have lived. You know what the problem for you and I is today? We're living in Sodom and there's no place to go. There's nowhere that we can escape. You say, well, then we have it worse than Lot. No, we have provisions that Lot didn't have. We have the completed scriptures in our possession. We have the spirit of God dwelling within us. We have a personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and so greater provisions are made where there's greater need. You and I, however, still have a choice. Are we going to separate from the culture that we live in or are we going to accommodate ourselves to that culture?
In Revelation, where it talks about the mystery Babylon, it says, come out of her, my people, that you be not partaker of her sins. And that is, of course, the challenge for us. The Lord, he says in verse 9, knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. The word temptation and trial is the same word. And to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. God knows how to do this. But I pointed out a couple of important things. It is possible to be delivered by God from the overflow or the outpouring of the wrath and still fall into evil after you've been delivered. Why is that important? You'll find out as we get to verse 20 and 22. Now let's read on about the character of these false teachers. You'll notice uh, before I get into this on page 11, you have the doctrine of the will of God versus the plan of God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just say God's will is revealed. God's plan is discovered. In other words, God reveals his will to you and I through his word. It is his will that we come to faith in Christ. It is his will that we grow up in grace. It is his will that we also be involved in serving him through the many avenues that he gives to us. That is the revealed will of God. That's true for every single one of us. What his will expresses for us is the same. But God has a plan for us, and his plan is individual. His plan has to be discovered. God doesn't tell me who I should marry, where I should move, what ministry I should be involved in. That is for me to discover. And how do I discover the plan of God? I dedicate myself to the revealed will of God. As we devote ourselves to the revealed will of God, His Spirit will work within us, He will guide and direct our circumstances, and He will lead us to the fulfillment of His individual plan. And as I point out in the section, His plan involves three things. The geographic will, where does He want me to be? Remember when He came to Abraham and He said, get out of Ur of Chaldea and go to a place that I will show you. That was only his plan for Abraham, not everybody else. It had to be discovered. It involves geography in the sense that God came to Elijah and said, go to Zarephath. I have provided a widow there who will care for you. There was a right place to be at the right time. If Elijah was at the brook Cherith when he was supposed to be in Zarephath, the provision would not be there. If Elijah was in Zarephath when he should have been at the brook Cherith, same problem. In other words, God has a right place for us to be at the right time. He also has his operational will. What does he want me to do? Now that I'm in the right place, what does God want me to do? For a time, 20 years, God's place for me was in Arkansas. And then the time came when that Geographic will change. His place for me was in Australia. And then, thank God, the time came. Change again and back to Arizona. I never in my wildest imagination thought that God would allow me to move back to a place that I absolutely love, Arizona, even though it's going to the dogs now because of a stolen election. But that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> 
Not only does God have a right place for me to be and a right thing for me to do, He has a motivational will. Why does He want me to do it? And this is always going to be the same. It's the love of Christ. He wants me to do it because I am being moved along by the love of Christ. All right, so we can get into our next section, the last section for the day, and this is going to really wrap it up for us. I'm going to have to go through this pretty rapidly, uh, but I think it pretty much speaks for itself. If you will, read with me uh, verse 10 through 17. God knows how to bring judgment on the ungodly, and especially, he says, those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, and despise authority. He's stacking up here characteristics of these false teachers. They, there's your third personal pronoun, are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. If you want to compare this with Jude chapter 9, it talks about Gabriel contending with the devil, and instead of Gabriel rebuking the devil, he simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Very mild-mannered response, because ultimately judgment belongs to God. Verse 12 says, but these, still talking about these false teachers, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand. And they will utterly perish in their own corruption. Utterly perishing is they're going to end up in the lake of fire. They will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who counted a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. You know, it's bad enough to carouse at night, even in the ancient world, even in ancient Greco-Roman world, carousing in the daytime was a great evil. It was something really looked down on. You'll remember when the believers started speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2, and the mockers said, they're full of new wine. Peter said, you got to be kidding. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. It's too early to be drunk. Right? That was the mentality at the time. Carousing in the daytime. Their spots and blemishes carousing in their deceptions while they feast with you. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll see that Paul rebukes even the Corinthian church because when they would gather for what they called the love feast and they would celebrate the Lord's table, some of them were getting drunk. Can you imagine you gather together as a church and you're celebrating the Lord's table and you've got people who are getting drunk and at the same time that the rich are uh, feeding themselves like gluttons and getting drunk, the poor are sitting there and they have nothing to eat and they're hungry. Those kind of conditions existed in the early church. And of course, they exist with us today in various ways. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery, the Greek literally says they have the eyes of an adulteress. And what it means is that these false teachers could not look at a woman without looking at her as a potential target. <coughs> That was what was in their mind. You remember Jesus said that if you look on a woman to lust after, it's the same as committing adultery in your heart. This is exactly what Peter is dealing with here. Every time they look at a woman, they see a potential adulteress. They cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. These unstable souls are the ones we're going to talk about 
who are immature believers, not well instructed, not stable in their faith, and it's possible for them to be led astray to great damage to their spiritual life. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Accursed children is what we would call a Hebraism, and it basically means that they are children characterized by a curse. Whenever you talk about someone being blessed or someone being cursed, always remember, I just showed you in Romans chapter 1, what does it mean to be under the curse of God? It means that he lets you go the way you want to go. It's not that God is cursing you, it's that you are bringing the curse on yourself. It's very important for us to understand that. It's kind of like, you know, a guy riding a horse. We were talking with Clint last night, and we've all had our uh, experiences on wild horses. And you got the horse that is going to hurt somebody, and you just cannot make this horse into a workable and usable horse. And sooner or later, you do one or two things. You turn him out in the pasture, let him go, or you put a bullet in his head. A lot of people have been killed because that wasn't done. He keeps going the way he's going. He keeps going the way he's going. Most horses, you can get them over that. Some would say all of them. I guess you'd have to be a horse whisperer to do that. I never whispered to my horses, so I guess that wouldn't work. But the point is, sometimes you get a rogue, you get a bronco, however you want to describe it, and they just will not be usable. And uh, when that happens... What do you do? You let them go their way. Either they're going to destroy themselves or you're going to destroy them. And God does the same with us. He says they have forsaken the right way and they have gone astray. And this is a willful rejection of the right way, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And you can go back into the book of Numbers and you can study the way of uh, Balaam, Balaam sold out for money. He basically was willing to compromise. He was a prophet. He was a prophet of God, but he was willing to compromise. And in Numbers chapters 22 to 25, you'll read the story. And of course, Peter says he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking. Uh, this was not really a donkey. Uh, you know, there's a difference between a donkey and a ass. Okay. The Assyrian ass, the Middle Eastern ass, was a phenomenal riding animal. Uh, if you get a good mule, uh, you have a great riding animal. I've only dealt with mules a little bit in my life. I have an old cowboy friend in Tennessee who tells me, and he'll probably be listening to this and get a chuckle, the only good mule is a mule that knows he's a mule and he's sorry for it. <laughs> well, that's the attitude of some people. But a good mule is a good mule, a good riding uh, a Syrian ass was a phenomenal animal. Uh, I don't think Balaam was probably riding on a little Sicilian donkey, but whatever the case doesn't really matter. It opened its mouth and rebuked him with a voice of a man restraining the madness of the prophet. What a terrible rebuke that a prophet who receives direct instructions from God would have to receive instructions from a dumb animal. That's the point that Peter is making to us. Makes you wonder also, did animals have the ability to speak before the fall? I kind of wonder about this. This is kind of a sidetrack. You know, when the serpent came up and started talking to Eve, she didn't go, ah! 
<laughs> Servant came up, started talking to her, and she said, yeah, how are you doing today? Well, did God say this? And, and they're into the temptation. I kind of wonder if the conditions of the fall may have imposed limitations on the animals. If you are an animal lover, if you have ever had a horse that you were really close to or a dog or a cat that you were really close to, have you ever seen them when they just look at you and it's like they just want so bad to be able to communicate to you? I have a dog that's that way. He wants to communicate to me all the time. Feed me, feed me, feed me. <laughs> He's always hungry. But he can't talk, so I just say, huh? Sorry, I can't hear what you're saying. And he's going, ah, ah. sorry, Hondo, I don't know what you're saying. It's a possibility. Verse 17, these are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of the darkness forever. That can only refer to eternity in the lake of fire. This is a horrible, horrible condemnation on these people. To be a well without water, if you live in a desert land and you've crossed a waterless place and you see a well in the distance, it gets your hopes up. You're anticipating a drink of that cool water and you get there and there's no water. I've been there because I've been lost in the desert and I'll tell you what, it's not fun. Actually, I wasn't lost. I knew where I wanted to go. I just couldn't figure out how to get there. <laughs> Everywhere I turned, there were cliffs. It was a long time ago, long story. Verse 18, for when they speak great swelling words, and this is a very interesting phrase, it actually refers to people who are full of hot air. That's the way we would say it. They have this great rhetoric. They have these uh, tremendously uh, intellectual sounding words and phrases, and they wow people with their communication skills, and yet Peter says they're great swelling bags of hot air, words of emptiness. But what do they do? They allure. This is the idea of enticing. This goes back to that fishing illustration I gave you yesterday. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. How did they escape? If you'll just drop down to verse 20, they escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Two things are said about the people that they lead astray. Number one, they have escaped. And number two, they escaped through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you will, turn your page back to chapter one. And in chapter one, verses two through three, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge. This is that word epinosis. Knowledge that goes above and beyond mere intellectual understanding. It is experiential. The knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, same word, of Him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world. You say, okay, preacher, what's the point? If these are believers in verse 2 and 3, these have to be believers in verse 18 and 20. Make sense? 
They have the same knowledge. That same knowledge has the same result. And that result is to escape. The word to escape, by the way, is the word uh, to flee out and away from uh, an impending danger. So they have fled and they have fled through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, while they here promise them, in other words, they being the false teachers, promise them, the believers that they've deceived liberty, they, the false teachers themselves, are slaves of corruption. They talk about liberty. They talk about freedom. You all know this. Those of you that were in the 60s, it was liberation, baby, right? Everything was freedom. But freedom meant no laws, no limits, no restriction, no nothing. And what was it? Their freedom was a slavery. They promised liberty. But they're slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome by him, he is also brought into bondage. Paul tells us the same thing in Romans chapter 6. You look at your notes there. Uh, Jesus talks about being liberated in John 8, 34 to 36. Paul talks about the same slavery in Romans 6, 16 and 1 Corinthians 6, 12. So hopefully some of you will uh, be really diligent students and go back through these notes. Look up the cross-references because they'll tell you a lot and they'll help you to understand the passages that we're reading. Now we get to the difficult part. Remember I said at the beginning, it's a bear trap coming and going. And the bear trap at the beginning is the question as you look at it, these people who deny the Lord and Savior who bought them, does the fact that he bought them immediately imply or indicate that they are believers? No, it doesn't because Christ died for all men, right? Christ died for all. He died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. That's what the scripture tells us. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. Tomorrow morning, we're going to read in Romans chapter 3, or in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again and again and again, in very simple terms, it is stated that the love of God encompasses all, that Christ died for all, and that all can believe if they are willing. So, they promise liberty, they're slaves of corruption. If after they have escaped, verse 20, who are the they? Now we're here. The they is the them. Can you see why this is difficult? If after they, the ones who escaped in verse 18, have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, epinosis, referring to full experiential knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them, that is, entangled in the corruption and deception of the false teachers and overcome the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. 
little mental exercise. Is there any case that you can think of in which the end of a believer would be worse than the beginning? Here's our problem. We immediately want to push this to the ultimate extent and think of eternity. Peter is not talking about their eternal condition. He is talking about in time. Can I give you two examples? Noah and his family delivered from the flood. One of those who was delivered was a guy named Ham. You remember that after the flood, Noah became a farmer. He planted a vineyard. He made wine. He got drunk. He was uncovered in his tent. Ham saw him, which could have some strange implications. I think I give you a uh, parallel passage here. If you compare Genesis 9, 20 to 25, where it says Ham saw his father with Habakkuk 2, verses 15 and 16, which says that you're under a curse from God if you make someone drink wine so that you may look on their nakedness. What's it talking about? Do I need to get specific? It's talking about getting someone drunk so that you can have sexual relations with them. Is it possible that Ham did that? The culture that he grew up in with was that kind of a culture. Why else would Noah pass down a curse on Ham that not only affected him, but his entire lineage? Remember in the law, Exodus 20, verse 5, I will visit wrath on the third and the fourth generation <clears throat> of what? Those who hate me. At any time, anyone in that lineage can turn to God in faith and be delivered. But as they continue hating him, as they continue carrying on the cultural, social, moral, and other perversions, their expression of the hate of God is going to bring judgment on them. I won't belabor the point but that's something you can work out. The point is, Ham's end was worse than his beginning. His beginning was good. He got delivered from judgment. His end, not so good. He brought judgment on his whole lineage. Second example, Lot. I've already illustrated this. Don't need to belabor it. Lot and his family are delivered. His wife is delivered from the judgment of Sodom, but turns back. Was her end Worse than her beginning? I think so. Lot was a believer called three times in our passage righteous. What is his end that we read about in Scripture? I've already told you. Incest with his daughters who bore two sons who became the heads of two tribes that were a curse to the people of Israel throughout their entire existence and will be until Christ comes again. Their end was worse than their beginning. I know believers right now, it breaks my heart to say this, some of them are family, once on fire for the Lord, once aware and awake to the teachings of the Word of God, once evangelizing, winning people to Christ, who today say there is no God. Is their end better or worse than their beginning? I think the answer is obvious. Do they still have eternal life? Yeah, by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. 
So when he says here, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. I just want you to notice, uh, you will have uh, references to this. Let me find the note. On page 14 and 15, uh, you'll notice in on point C there, Matthew 12, 43 to 45, apparently is where Peter got this phrase. The latter end is worse than the beginning. A parallel passage is Luke 11, 24 and 26, and you can read those. The last state of that man is worse than the beginning. Paul actually rebukes the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1 and Galatians 5 and verse 7. And he says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Who You were running well. Who hindered you that you should not run well? What's he saying? Your end is worse than your beginning. You started well. The Laodicean church. Read about the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3 or Drop back to Revelation chapter 2. Read about the church of Ephesus. What does Jesus say? He said, I have one thing against you. You have lost your first love. Actually, you haven't lost. You have left your first love. They began with a strong love for Jesus Christ. Their end was not as good as their beginning. It is possible, my friends, for each and every one of us to start well and end poorly. The Christian race, the race of life, is a distance race. It is a long distance, long haul, marathon, ultra marathon, however you want to figure it. And the question is, how am I going to finish my race? Paul challenges us in Hebrews. By the way, you say, but nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. I do. I'll tell you why tomorrow. Paul wrote it and I'll tell you why. What does he say? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. John talks to us in 1 John chapter 2 and 28, and he says, Let us live lives that are honorable so that when he appears, we may be joyful in his presence and not be ashamed at his coming. Would you not say that any believer who has to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in shame and draw back in shame, which is actually the phrase that he uses, here comes the Lord, and I'm going to run away from Him. Why? Because I've been running from Him all my life. Is it possible for a believer to do that? The Scripture tells us that it is. The Scripture gives us many examples. King Saul started out good, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, speaking prophetic utterances. How did he end up? He ended up on Mount Gilboa, losing after he went to a witch to find out what she had to tell him because God no longer would talk to him. You remember the prophet Samuel came up and said, tomorrow you will be with me, you and your sons? Where was Samuel? He was right here. He was in paradise. Saul was a believer. Did he finish as well as he began? Not at all. We can go on and on and on through the history of people in the scriptures and we see those who started well, ran well in the beginning, and then somewhere along the line fell by the wayside. And, you know, it's going to be a terrible shame at the judgment seat of Christ. When the scripture says that the Lord is going to wipe away all tears, it's because there's going to be a lot of tears. 
when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ and our lives are evaluated in the pure and true light of his holiness, I think we're all going to cry a little. But I think that should motivate us to do our very best to minimize those tears to the utmost. Now, verse 21 really flusters people, and I'm going to hit this real quick and may come back to it tomorrow morning just briefly. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. How could you say that of a believer? Very simple. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, before you have learned anything or grown anywhere, you would be better off to be left there than to learn what Paul calls the whole counsel of God and turn your back on it. You'd be better off. It would be better for you not to know the deep things of God and the deep things of Scripture than to be instructed in them. And why is that? What is it? Luke 12, 48. To whom much is given, much is required. God holds us accountable for what we hear. He holds us accountable for everything we know about His Word. The more we know, the greater the accountability, and therefore, I hate to say it, but in the case of some, and, and folks, the higher you climb, we talked about climbing that mountain, the higher you climb, the further you can fall. And there have been many, many believers. I could give you examples. I could name names that you would know who have climbed to great heights and then fallen into great depths. Still children of God, still have eternal life. God is faithful even when we're not. But unfortunately, had a terrible end in the story of their life. It would have been better for them not to have known all that they knew and learn all that they had learned than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Verse 22, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. What a tragic thing when we carry the mores, the values, the priorities, of the culture that we have left behind, of the world that we have come out of. And we carry those and we tuck them away in our pockets like we're never going to use them. We're just going to hang on to them. And yet, little by little, as they work on our heart and our soul and our conscience, we find ourselves falling right back into the position that we were in. Because I will say this. Any believer who comes out of deep sin to faith in Jesus Christ and falls in it again will go deeper still. I've seen it happen many, many times. I see many of you nodding. We have people that we know came out of drugs, came out of sex, came out of whatever, came to Christ and fall back into it and are worse than they were even before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. What a tragedy and what a shame. That ought not to be the truth of any of us. Therefore, three groups in Second Peter. I hope that it's a little more clear to you. I hope that it untangles. I'm sure it doesn't resolve any question you may have, but you know, I only have a short time. I've been working on this for 50 years, so I've just given you a head start. You're ahead of me. 
probably 20 years ago. So let's pray and we'll get ready for our next class. Father, we are thankful for your grace. Only your spirit can make your word clear to us. I pray that you'll just clear the decks of our heart and soul and mind. Make us receptive to your word as the spirit ministers it to us. Prepare us for the next class that's coming up as we break up to the men's and ladies' classes. We give you thanks for them all in Jesus' name. Amen.